1: I'm Caleb Zacharin, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in History. Today I'm speaking with Julian E. Zelizer, professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University. Julian has assembled a team of historians for the collection The Presidency of Donald J. Trump, a first historical assessment from Princeton University Press. Contributors include Kathleen Blue, Geraldo Kadaba, Jeffrey Engel, Beverly Gage, Michael Kazin, and Hyanga Yamada-Taylor in addition to several other historians. With this volume, Julian has sought to contextualize the Trump presidency in a variety of historical perspectives. Thank you so much, Julian, for being on the New Books Network today.
0: Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you. So, you
1: know, as standard with NBN interviews, the first question I would like to ask is, uh, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what inspired you to make this
0: project? Sure. Um, So I'm a historian, and I'm a historian at Princeton uh, University, and I've been a historian now uh, since going to graduate school and finishing in 1996 at Johns Hopkins University, and I've tried throughout my career um, to connect uh, the issues that uh, I study and teach about in the academy uh, to questions that concern public life and where we are today, uh, whenever that might be in our democracy. And, and one area where I've tried to do this, um, which is relevant to this series, is how do you understand the presidency in interesting ways? And uh, I often was frustrated uh, uh, when I'm asked in my public pundit life you know, to rate each president from uh, one to 10 best to worst kind of scale, or when I'm asked, what will the legacy be? of a particular president, because all of those are unanswerable, they change, and they're totally subjective. So uh, when George W. Bush ended his presidency, I started this series that I pitched to Princeton University Press, where basically when a presidency ends, I would find some of the most interesting historians, not all of whom are presidential historians. In fact, I like to look outside that kind of boundary, historians on issues that mattered, to a president. And they can have a first cut, uh, first take on what happened during the four to eight year period and to put the presidency in a long term continuum, long term context. And that's what this book is. It's the third in the series. And um, that's been kind of how that connects to my broader interest as a historian since starting this profession.
1: How has this uh, presidential history, first historical assessment series evolved since the first one?
0: Um, Well, I I didn't know how it would go, to be honest, when I started with Bush. And uh, it's funny, even though people say this must have been a tough one, given how controversial uh, President Trump was and unconventional, et cetera, et cetera. It was the same thing in many ways when Bush ended his presidency, same kinds of questions. And uh, it's evolved in that uh, I think the people I've found have pulled off the kind of assigned task and the books have done well. And so, you know, when you have a series, each time the book does well, it broadens uh, how many people uh, will read it. But it also kind of sets a precedent for the next volume. And I think each time I do one of these, historians are aware of what the last group did and can think more clearly uh, and with greater analytical rigor about how to pull this off uh, and not replicate what journalists do, um, which is great, but not what we're doing, or even not replicate the behind-the-scenes kinds of books that tend to come out when a presidency ends. So I, I think the evolution has, has just made the series uh, stronger over time. You start off the
1: series with two introductory essays of yours of yourself and you give some background on a sort of a, a a snapshot bio on trump so i thought that was a pretty interesting biography because you you focus in particular on trump's relationship to politics even before he was president so i was wondering if you could just give a little bit of a background on trump's political history before he became president
0: yeah i mean that that is what i was trying to do obviously a book like this, you just want to give a, a, some overview of who the person was without a whole essay, because that's just not the kind of uh, chapters. But I did want to emphasize he was not someone new to the world of politics um, in 2016. And he was someone in different ways who had toyed with the idea of of running or, or actually gotten involved. He runs Um, with the Reform Party uh, in in the late 1990s and starts to explore the idea of being president. He's involved uh, certainly with uh, supporting different kinds of politicians financially and enmeshing himself in that world. Uh, In 2011, uh, he really enters the stage with the birther movement. And um, all someone has to do is Google Videos from his appearances on shows like The View, where he's dressed, you know, in 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 pretty kind of presidential clothing, so to speak, and and making a name for himself by going after President Obama and questioning the legitimacy of of his birthplace. And this is a political movement. Um, it's very much connected in 2011 and 12 to Republican politics and. Then in 2012, um, he's really uh, exploring the idea of running, uh, but decides it's not the right time and that Obama wasn't going to lose. And he waits to 2016. So that trajectory, I mean, there's other parts of his life like reality TV, um, but there is a political component that's pretty serious. And so People debate, you know, did this come out of nowhere or was he just trying to get a better contract on television? I just, I don't think that's accurate. I think he's had political inclinations. Even in the 80s, he would talk about politics either while he's a real estate mogul in New York and a so kind of a page six celebrity, uh, meaning a, a gossip column uh, celebrity. You know, he takes out an ad about the Central Park Five Um, Which is a a famous case where a group of young uh, uh, men, uh, black men, were uh, falsely uh, arrested. But he takes out this very controversial ad, basically calling, well, not basically, but uh, calling for the deployment of the death penalty, uh, which is connected to a moment in politics of conservatism, of law and order conservatism. So, it's just there from the beginning. And and I think at some level, he had always toyed with this and he found the right moment in 2016. Right. So obviously, you know, Trump has been
1: a, a commentator on politics. He's been adjacent to politics, but then he actually ends up becoming president. And many people have treated his his ascendancy and his election as completely unprecedented, completely shocking. And you title uh, this introduction, the most predictable unconventional presidency. Why, why do you call it that?
0: Yeah, what I what I really wanted to capture uh, in, in both my introduction and essay, that there are ways to think about not only his winning and being in the Oval Office, but what he did, both in terms of policy and in terms of the way he governed, uh, that there were press, not precedence, but there was a foundation for what he did. Um, And a lot of American politics had been changing in pretty profound ways since the 1970s that helps explain a lot of what we saw during those four years. So uh, I go through, for example, a number of policy areas that were pretty important to his administration, supply side tax cuts, deregulation on environmental and workplace issues, um, kind of... uh, Plain and appealing to the religious right, particularly through court appointments, but also in issues of reproductive rights, and even elements of foreign policy like challenging NATO, all of which Republicans had been doing in different ways um, for many decades. And it wasn't that much of a puzzle of why Republicans supported him, even if so many Republicans said the, the way he talks is wrong and some of his actions are wrong, because it was part of a uh, a pretty familiar playbook. Even voting restrictions is not new to 2016. The Republicans have turned uh, toward this issue for some time, certainly since the early 2010s. And then, secondly, even his methods, even his strategies, while they are certainly uh, pushing the boundaries and going beyond what, you know, certainly any Republican president had done, but even legislator, they do come out of somewhere. His use, for example, of the conservative media uh, as a base for communication and for information, dissemination, something we saw from Republicans. Uh, George W. Bush was already doing this. Republican legislators were doing this all the time. Uh, The willingness to uh, ignore uh, the remaining norms of governance and to take basic procedures and use them in partisan warfare, something we've seen certainly since Newt Gingrich in the 1980s, and then with the Tea Party in the 2010s. And and that was central to what he did. And so in both those two kind of examples, sure, uh, there are certain things he did which went beyond what others did, and and he did it in unconventional ways, but but there was a predictability about it. And then all that is important to understand how he fit into contemporary Republican politics and also contemporary politics more generally. I've
1: seen, you know, a lot of historians have drawn uh, analogies or similarities between Trump and Barry Goldwater. Uh, Obviously, Barry Goldwater's run in 64 ended in disaster, uh, but it would set the, the groundwork eventually for Ronald Reagan to win in the 80s. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk about the relationship between Trump and this sort of historical background of the sort of radical conservative turn in the 60s, through, in the early 60s through the 80s.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that is an um, interesting way to think about it in that Goldwater, was a senator from Arizona, who was pretty right in terms of his policies and embraced that right wing conservatism, he runs. He's defeated in a landslide election against President Lyndon Johnson. And what happens, though, is Republicans, a lot of them move away from that. It was almost a test run and it didn't go well. And so what you see in the 60s and even much of the 70s are Republicans, including Nixon, who don't want to allow for the party to radicalize and who are still pushing for much more of a coalitional model of Republican politics, trying to replicate What Franklin Roosevelt had done uh, in the 1930s. But but Reagan's a real turning point because he is a lot like Goldwater in terms of the way uh, that his policy agenda was structured, his embrace of conservatism. And from that moment on, what happens is that Goldwater legacy becomes in some ways uh, more important than it had. Even though he lost in 64, he sets the agenda for the you know, next few decades. And I think you can see how the party had changed, how Goldwater won that debate by the time Trump is president. He is the leader of a very radicalized Republican party uh, and in some ways fulfills Goldwater's dreams. the, The only difference is Goldwater still came out of the Senate and still worked within those institutions in an era that believed those institutions were important. I think The party moved even further than Goldwater imagined on that uh, as well. And we're willing to go uh, in a much more aggressive fashion uh, to pursue partisan power. And just to sort
1: of, you know, round out this, this kind of Republican prehistory to Trump, because I think it is important just to demonstrate the fact that Trump, you know, wasn't necessarily a in aberration in politics for his brash style. Um, Could you also talk a little bit about uh, Newt Gingrich and the sort of shift in politics that he initiated in the 90s?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote a book about him a few years ago, which in some ways helped me think a little bit about this period. And Gingrich was a Georgia congressman. And in the 80s, when he was not a In a position of power in the GOP, he he made himself influential, and that culminates in him becoming Speaker of the House in '94. And Gingrich was very interesting, very shrewd, and he uh, openly told fellow Republicans to stop thinking about issues like bipartisan civility and to stop worrying about what you said about an opponent, but say what was necessary to win. And worked with Republicans, including his Speaker to do pretty dramatic things like be willing to shut down the federal government in pursuit of certain budget goals, which at the time were very new. And and if you think of politics or politicians as balancing uh, three priorities, partisanship, uh, governance, and the health of our institutions, what was interesting about and relevant about Gingrich is he elevated partisanship above the other two in a very... Uh, direct and dramatic fashion. And I think that was important. Uh, I think he was part of a generation of Republicans that made that decision and became not just mavericks in their party. They weren't Joe McCarthy's. They were actually the leaders of the party. Gingrich becomes Speaker of the House and one of the most influential Republicans of the era. And so I think that change uh, opened the doors to where the GOP would end up by 2016.
1: So when Trump first announces, he famously rides down on an escalator and he gives a speech where the major soundbite was him calling Mexicans rapists and saying they're not sending their best. Uh, You know, immigration is really the, the first issue that Trump brings up. And some of your contributors discuss Trump's perspective on immigration. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Some of the contributors' commentaries on that, and then also about the you know interesting phenomenon of there being a a decently sized contingency of Latinos for Trump as well.
0: Yeah, so that's a policy area in our book where I I really was interested to see how historians took that element of the Trump presidency, which is there on date, literally there on day one when he announces. Uh, this is what he wants to center attention on and say, well, where does that come from? Um, and I think what uh, authors, including May Nye, who's a very good historian of immigration, a great historian at Columbia, she writes a chapter which is really about the rightward turn on immigration that we see beginning really in the mid-1990s in the GOP. Uh, it takes off in California uh, during a debate over a proposition that involves uh, benefits and rights uh, afforded uh, to immigrants uh, here in the country. And then by the uh, early 2000s, the party's really changing. And uh, in my earlier book on George W. Bush, I actually had an essay by a historian, Gary gersell who argued that even though Bush was pretty liberal on immigration and genuinely believed not only that the party had to incorporate uh, immigrants, but that uh, it was just the right thing to do based on his own life in Texas. But he ran right up against his own party in Congress, which had moved in a different direction. And and I think by 2015, 16, that is where most Republicans, at least in Washington, are on immigration. And, And Trump repeatedly, both as candidate and president, tapped into that nativist, restrictionist sentiment, which has become pretty defining in uh, many parts of the Republican Party. And so it wasn't there. Again, it's not so much of a surprise, nor is it Trump shifting the party. He is capitalizing uh, and trying to kind of energize the party based on where it had already moved. We have an essay um, by Kadova about Latinos and Trump, which is quite interesting as well. And, and he writes about the phenomenon that was clear by 2020 that Uh, Even though most of the Latino vote still went to the Democrats, there was a pretty significant increase uh, during Trump's presidency. And he argues it wasn't despite of Trump's immigration policies. He argues there was actually support for this um, among Latinos who are already here. Many supported his anti-immigration stance. Many supported his appeal to uh, religious conservatism. And many supported his economic policies. And uh, so it's a, it's a complex story. It's both a story about a president embracing the restrictionism of his party and, and amplifying it, not trying to hide it. But then how there were certain communities, even those affected by this rhetoric, who actually liked what was going on and uh, were one area where Trump's support increased rather than decreased.
1: So two of the, the, probably the the most key aspects of Trump's uh, run for presidency were the release of the Access Hollywood tape um, with Billy Bush, where Trump basically confessed to sexual assault, uh, and also uh, the uh, release of the James Comey letter on Hillary Clinton's emails. So the, the reason why I asked those two together is because I think that they converge on trump's interesting relationship with women and specifically this kind of uh, demonization of hillary clinton that was crucial so so I if you could talk about trump's uh the the trump's relationship with with women and running you know the the feminist uh perception of him uh and then also this uh this kind of anti-hillary sentiment as well sorry that's a, a lot of questions in one but
0: no, it's it's pretty defining for him. Uh, we have a very nice essay chapter in the book uh, by Leandra Zarnow, a historian who who tackled this question. And uh, because of of who he was personally, um, and and the kind of uh, rhetoric you heard on the Access Hollywood tape, but also because of this campaign being him pitting himself against, you know, the most prominent, powerful woman in American politics in 2016, Hillary Clinton, a lot of the election for many voters was seen through this prism of gender. And uh, even some of the ways in which he attacked her or hovered behind her during the debates were impossible to disconnect from the feeling that this became in some ways a litmus test of where the country was on some of the feminist revolution of the 1970s and 80s. And when the victory went to Trump rather than Clinton, uh, she covers the uh, kind of mobilization and uh, anger that existed in many parts of the electorate, certainly the Democratic electorate, which uh, turned into the Women's March around his inauguration and the Me Too movement as well, which takes hold during this period. And uh, at the same time, She says there were many women who had a different kind of response to this. And she writes about both in the electorate, white women voters whose support does not diminish uh, for him, despite uh, all these questions uh, about uh, what he means for feminism and for women's rights. And she also writes about this kind of group of female politicos, so to speak, who Trump nurtures within what she says is a very male-centered, male-defined White House, but bringing in people like Kellyanne Conway. uh, And and she argues this was not an insignificant number of uh, pretty powerful Republicans to work in that framework. So it's a little like the uh, essay on Latinos and Trump in that there's a complexity to how the story unfolds. Um, but it was, a, it was, it was like immigration. I think it was a very, it, he was about, uh, kind of the white male voter in many ways, or that's who he's, that's whose voice he wanted to express certain white male voters. Um, but that's how the chapter on, on gender handles this in interesting ways.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, that's actually a perfect segue into my next question, which is that one of the, the, the key moments, cultural clashes that happens pretty early on in the Trump presidency in late 2017 is the Unite the, the Right rally in Charlottesville. Um, and obviously, this is when, you know, there starts to be more discussion about whether or not, you know, Trump is is a white, whether or not he's a white supremacist, whether or not he has white supremacist sympathies. Is he just courting certain types of voters? Uh, so I was wondering if you could talk about some of the the work that historians did in this collection on yeah. This issue. So we
0: have um, we have two essays that really focus on on this issue uh, the most. One is uh, by Kathleen Ballou, who's a, a terrific historian of white supremacy, kind of as a modern phenomenon, white power movements since the 1960s. and Kianga Yamada Taylor, who's a colleague of mine at Princeton, who uh, writes about the way in which race impacts all elements of, of American life and certain structural uh, factors that manifest themselves and keep divisions front and center. And so Charlottesville was obviously, I think for many voters, the first time this was in front of everyone once he was president. He had made remarks during his campaign and uh, retweeted uh, you know, people from supremacist and racist sites. He had famously refused to denounce David Duke when interviewed uh, by a TV show. But this was different. This was a, a, a really ugly event uh, in a college town where one person would lose her life as a result of this. And uh, he equivocated. Um, if you hear all the tapes, he he does denounce uh, uh, the, the white supremacists, and he'll like to point to that part of the tape to kind of go after people who are criticizing him. But he doesn't say that front and center. And he keeps talking about Antifa and left-wing protesters. And it becomes very much part of what he does all right through the 2020 election when he's talking about the Proud Boys uh, at one of the debate and the supporters who come for January 6th. Many have come from these white power-ish organizations, uh, either directly or or indirectly. And, you know, neither of those historians tell us in the end, what does Trump think? Meaning that's a tough uh, kind of challenge for another book. You know, where is his heart? Is he part of this? Or is he someone who capitalizes on it? And what the authors show is he certainly capitalized on it. Uh, Kathleen really talks about the expansion of these white power organizations and the increased use of white supremacist language in the public sphere. And Trump is very much, you know, uh, involved in this, as are many top advisors. And um, again, without knowing what's in his heart of hearts, we know this became part of a presidency very much in the post-civil rights era. And uh, similarly with, uh, you know, Kianga's essay, uh she she sees it more of a bipartisan phenomenon, a a move away from dealing with many of the core racial issues uh that had come up after the 60s of civil rights, but that Trump took a deep dive into this politics in a way really a few other politicians had been willing to do. Almost enjoyed uh kind of stirring stirring these waters. So uh, it's certainly one of the more controversial parts of his presidency and there are many controversial parts. Um, but again, here he is tapping into pretty big trends that concerned intelligence agencies that concern political observers and and using them for political advantage
1: you, you know Trump also we've discussed a little bit about uh, some some social and cultural issues and trump Trump clearly you know as you as you point out, Presidency very much defined by a lot of uh, a lot of cultural yeah, cultural pot stirring, uh, but you know another thing that that Trump was also uh, perhaps different than than some of the, than his predecessors in changing the discussion around in the Republican Party is around engagement uh, with international affairs. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you could talk about Trump's approach to international affairs, his policies on China, uh, and also. Uh, you know his engagement uh, with the Middle East and some of the decisions that he made around uh, how to reshape or rethink about America's role in the world.
0: Yeah, we have. I think we have a series of um, really interesting essays on foreign policy uh, that they're models for me in some ways of, of how do you take an incredibly turbulent presidency and step back and, and try to figure out more broadly what just happened. And so we have uh, one essay by Jeffrey Engel, who's a very distinguished diplomatic historian who focused really on NATO and the post-war liberal institutions, of of liberal internationalist institutions, and and looked at Trump's ongoing attacks on them. Uh, NATO was the prime example, where he really threatened NATO, uh, talked disparagingly about NATO, and famously... Um didn't really move away from Vladimir putin's uh, uh, hostility toward toward nato and And part of what Engel argues is that the institutions and the countries involved had greater incentives to stay in this and to keep this together than Trump was able to break. And so those incentives didn't go away. and so when his presidency ends, they're still in place. and that's an important part of the chapter, but he does argue. That Trump went even further than some of his Republican predecessors in ways that would cause lasting damage, and most importantly, he wasn't willing to commit really to, or, or he he said enough times uh, his skepticism about the Article of the NATO agreement that commits everyone to defend each other, and Engel argues that won't go away. Uh, that will be remembered, and it undermines some of the relationships in this core alliance. Um, and those have to be repaired. The article on China is fascinating. Uh, this is the fun part of writing a book or editing a book like this is you work with authors and you, you watch as the essays take unexpected turns. It it looks at uh, Trump's adversarial stance toward China and, and argues it's really the end of a multi-decade uh, kind of era, which really starts in 72 when Richard Nixon opens diplomatic relations and engagement with China, accelerates with George H.W. Bush, uh, who even with Tiananmen Square doesn't allow these increasing bonds to end. It's a bipartisan era of engagement. And this is finally falling apart. Uh, and especially with COVID, uh, uh, Mann argues that we are now in a period where engagement really is no longer the operating model of how the nations um, look at each other. So that's a great example where, yes, Trump's tweets were over the top and the kind of rhetoric he deployed was over the top. And some of his tariffs certainly went beyond what other presidents were willing to do. But this process has been disintegrating or this engagement has been disintegrating for some time. And finally, the Middle East essay is very interesting by Dan Kurtzer, who teaches at Princeton and was a very renowned diplomat, ambassador to Egypt and Israel. And basically, uh, he argues the Middle East was already a mess uh, and public policy was a mess when Trump came into office. But he says Trump was really a transactional president. He didn't understand foreign policy as a series of policy challenges and issues and diplomatic puzzles that had to be addressed. He just approached each issue as a bargaining opportunity. It's almost like a business opportunity. And the result was he left the region in a real mess. And uh, Kurtzer argues that uh, for sure, Israeli-Palestinian relations were not in a good place in 2016. But by the end, because Trump makes a series of moves that open the wounds, rather than trying to heal some of the wounds between these two people, uh, it, it's, it's just not in a good place. And and part of why this happens is he never really had an agenda in the Middle East. Uh, he's moving from one thing to another. And so those are the three, uh, foreign policy, uh, chapters that I think are, are quite important.
1: There's another chapter on an issue where there's, there's obviously a, a, a foreign policy element, um, this, you know, on Trump's decision to Pull the U.S. out of the climate, uh, uh, the Paris uh, Climate uh, Accord. So I was wondering if you could talk about Trump's approach to climate change uh, and the uh, the sort of writing done here by, especially you know specifically by Beth Demuth.
0: Yeah, I mean, she wrote a really interesting essay, and this is one of those cases where you can see long term policy continuities, and this is an area where certainly uh, GOP politics has. Moved further away um, from environmentalism and uh, climate change science. um, And and we saw this coming. So during the Reagan era, during the debates over acid rain already, the Reagan administration was challenging scientific expertise on this question. George H.W. Bush was almost uh, a bit of an anomaly in that he still uh, was clinging and supporting an environmental agenda, including international agreements. But by the time you hit George W. Bush's president in 2001, there's really an all-out assault on the regulatory mechanisms that were trying uh, to combat this problem, and international agreements like the Kyoto Protocol, which were being put into place, recognizing climate change as an international, not national, problem. That's one of the first things that George W. Bush pulled out of. Uh, and and during his presidency, he uses the executive power to deregulate uh, a lot of what Clinton had tried to regulate in the late 1990s. And and uh, Trump follows this model uh, really 100 uh, percent. A big part of his domestic record is about undoing uh, regulations and uh, promoting industries that uh, harm uh, the the uh, health of our climate, and publicly uh, embracing and uh, echoing climate change denialism and skepticism at the highest levels of power. And, and her essay uh, offers a pretty uh, powerful and compelling argument that this is really one of the major legacies that we're going to have um in terms of public policy from these four years, the the undoing of so many regulations and the legitimation of climate change denialism rhetorically. And obviously he pulls out of the Paris Climate Accord, which was really uh, an important uh, international framework and approach to dealing with this issue, not unlike the Kyoto Protocol.
1: When Trump first gets into office, one of the things you know he, he, that he promises, and he definitely delivers on this. Is that he's going to have a, a bit of a, a different, a different style? You've already kind of referenced that his even his approach to foreign policy was more like that of a businessman. And Trump brings together some economic leaders and has this this kind of new approach to business and tech. So, how how is Trump's thinking about uh, business and technology um, and innovation uh, different or unique? Uh, From previous presidents. I
0: mean, so so in terms of basic economic policy, it's very familiar. This is one area where you could imagine any of the other Republicans who he defeated in the primary would probably pursue exactly what he was pursuing. And that includes the most quote unquote establishment like figures like Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio. And his major legislative accomplishment is the tax cut of 2017, which is a Uh, a huge slash in the corporate tax rate uh, that would have made Ronald Reagan smile. And, uh, you know, once you see that pass, you see why so many Republicans were fine with having him in office. He delivers a a pretty big, pretty big bill. And on the executive power front, he moves forward on a number of deregulations of workplace safety uh, measures. That's uh, quite uh, consistent with what Republicans had been trying to do uh, every time they were in the Oval Office. The relationship with the high tech industry is covered by historian Margaret O'Mara at the University of Washington. And uh, she argues it's a a tense relationship in some ways, that uh, on on the one hand, some of the things he does in terms of public policy have strong support from the high tech community. Uh, the, The tax cut is one of them that they support. Uh, Some of the tariffs and more adversarial uh, positions toward China, although they're against immigration restrictions, but some of the economic policies have support um, because of patent issues and some of the challenges high-tech faces. But on the end, Trump is a perfect president for the era of social media uh, platforms, which has become a key part of this industry. So what would Facebook want more? Uh, or Twitter want more than a president who uses that uh, and gives it a kind of visibility that it didn't have still, even in 2014 and 15. Everyone knew what Twitter was by the time his presidency ended. And so it was good for industry. But she also shows uh, points of tension. Again, immigration, especially of highly skilled workers, was not something that Silicon Valley um, was very uh, pleased with increasingly as time goes on the administration is more supportive of, of certain regulations or antitrust measures on the industry often because he feels persecuted uh, so whether it's in in cable television with uh, combinations of companies or him being banned in the end by Twitter uh, these fuel um, some of some of his hostility toward the industry but people will read Margaret's Chapter in different ways, but but overall there is some synergy, um, and high tech is doing very well. By the time his presidency ended, it's one of the most vibrant parts of the economy, and obviously COVID uh, only strengthened them because so much of business and communication was taking place through this medium as opposed to more traditional mediums.
1: Sort of picking up where you where you just ended with with mentioning COVID, you know, obviously. If if COVID nineteen, it's hard to say this, but if COVID nineteen hadn't happened, there's a there's a, a pretty decent chance that Trump might have won re-election. The economy was doing well, stock market was at all time highs, which he loved to to point out. Uh, so you know, obviously, we're we're still in many ways in uh, COVID nineteen, and I think that you know historians will be looking back on this period of time uh, with a with a microscope for for decades to come. But if I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about uh, the historical perspective on Trump's role in the pandemic and in the U.S. response to it.
0: Yes, so uh, we have a whole chapter uh, on that um, on that question, which is called the sixty forty problem, Trump culpability in COVID nineteen, and uh, the historian who tackled this, uh, you know, he's trying to balance what did President, former President Trump do that aggravated or made worse this pandemic? And what was structural that helped make the problem what it was? And sometimes those worked hand in hand, but at other times there were different kinds of problems. And Merlin, um, he writes about certain uh, elements of of the Trump presidency, obviously uh, the, the ongoing hostility to science and expertise. Uh, the period early in January and February when the administration is not really focused on uh, key uh, steps such as uh, testing and contact tracing and equipment for medical uh, phys- physicians that could have helped uh, curb some of this. But then there's other issues that go beyond Trump. And and Merlin's arguing these are very important to understand, uh, such as the decentralization and fragmentation Of our public health system, which gives so much power and leeway to local officials, which in the case of COVID led to just continued chaos uh, and inconsistencies in terms of what kind of treatments we did. He talks about anti expertise and this long history of it that goes well beyond Trump. Some of it is on the left in the 60s and 70s, a, a kind of questioning of science and pharmaceutical industries. And then A lot of it will really take hold with the right. Um, uh, But you add all of this together, he says, it's not totally surprising that when we're faced with this, it's very hard to really mobilize uh, any kind of effective response. So he's trying to show the interplay between where a presidency had a big effect, but where the structures of our institutions and policies uh, were right there uh, at the same time, uh, hampering our ability to to deal with this uh, virus that ravaged the world.
1: Yeah, another aspect of the Trump presidency that is something that I found fascinating, in part because it wasn't something that I expected to even had my radar, was just the the absolute rivalry between Trump and the FBI and you know this kind of proffering of the of the term the deep state Uh, And this, these, these really major attacks that Trump made against uh, the administrative state. So uh, what is, what do some of the historians say about, about this, the book?
0: Yeah, here, here's a place, this is one place where you can see uh, Trump turning away or going in a different direction and then where a lot of Republicans had been. So Beverly Gage is a historian at Yale's writing a book on the FBI, tackled this one. Um, And, Um, There there are ways in which Trump continued with the classic Republican theme of law and order. And for example, as uh, after the George Floyd uh, murder and the uh, emergence or reemergence of of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, just a few months after the pandemic had shut everything down, uh, Trump, who privately was, uh, according to what some journalists have found, was, was actually upset watching the George Floyd video and didn't have nice words to say about the police. In public, he turns to a hard line law and order mentality. And he keeps emphasizing again and again, as protests are unfolding, he focuses attention on incidents of violence to define what the protests are about. He had his famous moment where he's going to the St. John's church and uh, has protesters cleared uh, from the park, Lafayette Park, that, that is in between the two places pretty much as a, a photo uh, you know, um, promo to show he's being tough uh, rather than taking steps to really sympathize uh, and respond to, to what had just happened. But in other ways, um, Beverly shows he's breaking with this law and order thing because his major foil becomes uh, institutions of law enforcement as uh, James Comey uh, is uh, undertaking an investigation of Russian interference in the 2016 election. And then after he's fired, Robert Mueller's appointed as a special prosecutor. A lot of Trump's rhetoric turns against law and order. In fact, law and order, in his mind in that case, is a politicized, out of control, unaccountable Part of American politics, which is ironically an argument many on the left had been expressing for many decades, ever since the 1970s and the revelations of what the CIA and FBI had done to civil rights protesters. But, but there, Trump breaks with with the party, and, and she argues creates some rifts that are not going to um, be easily undone now that he's gone. So something that
1: that Trump shares uh with with only two other presidents is that he was impeached mm-hmm. and you definitely uh you discuss this in the book that the trump or, or not you but uh but gregory downs discusses the the trump impeachment so uh, what what was uh was unique or or different about the, the trump impeachment that might make you know make us reconsider how uh this mechanism for uh you know, admonishing and removing the president, potentially <laughs> failing to remove the president might work.
0: Well, I mean, Greg Greg Downs ends his essay really raising the question of did the Trump presidency expose that this really isn't a process that's worth much, that in fact, Congress doesn't have a mechanism to control uh, the abuse of presidential power. And he writes a, a long history of how after a period Uh, Following Nixon's uh, resignation, you have increased impeachment talk, as he calls it, where there's always more uh, threats or more discussion about whether uh, either a president or another official should be impeached and ongoing comparisons between scandals like uh, Iran-Contra and Watergate and always using the gate suffix to describe what was going on. And the moment this starts to change is obviously with Bill Clinton's impeachment, where the talk turns into action. But ultimately, Congress decides there not to move forward with the impeachment. But then we have this dramatic, uh, you know, twice impeached president within the span uh, of basically a few months. Uh, first for the call with Ukraine, uh, with the Ukrainian president, uh, for uh, the president threatening to withhold aid and meetings uh, in exchange for political dirt. And then secondly, the impeachment of January 6th. And there, Trump exposed, uh, he exposed something that was already there, um, but no one had really tested it. He, he obviously engaged in some of the most egregious uh, acts of, of uh, excessive presidential power. And there's debates, was it impeachable or not? But there was few times, even Richard Nixon, where a president went so far uh, as, as what we saw, and yet uh, partisanship protected him. And uh, it kind of it showed that in this day and age, it's not clear some of those constitutional mechanisms can really work because the power of partisanship is so, so strong. And, and so Down's Ends, that's the final chapter on our essay, which I thought was a good way to end it because... Part of the question of the Trump presidency was what is the health of our democratic institutions and how dysfunctional or how broken are parts of it? And what happens when someone like president Trump really tests the limits of what you can do, of how far you can go. And with the case of impeachment, it shows you can go pretty far. I mean, January 6th is about as far as a president could take, uh, Presidential power, and January 6th was part of a continuum, a, a long campaign that starts the night of the election to raise questions about the legitimacy of the vote and it culminates with this attack on Congress. And yet, even this was not enough to break the power of partisanship to protect the president. And so there's all these moments when uh, he tests where we are, and the results of those tests are, Uh, It's in a a pretty frail state, a lot of our political process right now.
1: A a former professor of mine uh, was once sharing an anecdote about the the French historian Marc Bloch about how Bloch said that you know even though history you know you're looking at uh, in the archives and you're looking at documents it's still if you're going to write a history on French agrarianism it still is nice to go into the fields and to walk through and to get a sense of what it was actually like to walk through so you know you begin this book talking about your the fact that you and the historians actually met with Trump mm-hmm. so I'm wondering how that experience speaking with him whether or not that you know framed some of the way that you were thinking about this project and you know, what it, you know, what it, what it means to, to write history or to do uh, work as a historian and also, you know, engage with a living, breathing subject.
0: So I'll start with the second part of that, which is, it's always something I, since I write a lot of history that is considered more recent, um, I think about that a lot. And part of the premise of this book, this this book series is uh, a, that historical conversations about presence never really end. It's an artificial marker to say, well, you can start writing the history in 10 years or 20 years. Like there is never a a period you start, you can start right away. And the way we should think of history and historical writing is an ongoing conversation an ongoing debate. And that's a good thing where we reevaluate things we thought, where we gain more evidence and add to the picture, complicate the picture. And, uh, you know, to, when I hear the kind of criticism or argument that can you really write about a president when you just lived through it, when it just ended, for me, I always say I, I understand the criticism and and my answer is what I just said. But it also kind of brings something to the table when you write about contemporary history that you lived through. It's what you said. It's that you have a feel for the characters. You have a feel for where the country was. You understand the references uh, in terms of the rhetoric someone is using. In a way, historians will never be able to replicate 200 years from now. Um, It's like historians today who go back that far. You have to tease things together, but you weren't there. So I always thought, boy, it's great to have at least one group of historians write about this right after it happened and, and even understand the interconnections between different parts of a presidency in a way that become more obscure over time. Uh, And meeting with him was certainly the most unexpected part of the project. And basically what happened was uh, we met the authors virtually. Uh, I always do this. I used to do it in person, but um, we do first drafts of the essays and uh, we share it, discuss it, and then go back to revise. And the New York Times decided to cover this. And they wrote a story uh, in the culture section, historians you know, doing a first draft of the Trump presidency and interviewed people and described it. And he saw it. Uh, and then one of his staffers, Jason Miller, contacted me and said, the president wants to meet with you and any of the historians who want to join and give his side of the story. Um, And for a while, I figured out whether to do it, uh, how to do it. He invited me to go to Mar-a-Lago or Bedminster or to meet on Zoom. And I ended up doing it on Zoom because then I could get as many of the contributors who could come and I could record it uh, and keep this. And it was just a more controlled environment. And so uh, we did it that way. And it was surreal. I mean, I don't think it changed anyone's uh, essay other than my introduction, which became about that and a way to think about truly the challenges that come uh, when you're writing uh, about uh, contemporary history and writing about this president in, in particular. But what was fascinating was, A, he cared what we thought, which doesn't necessarily flow out of his ongoing attacks on elites and experts and institutions. He was there to make a case to us about why he was a better president than people thought. And um, I just thought that was interesting, the way he conceived of, of what historians do, how we, that you could almost persuade someone to write something. It was a, it was truly a business person's approach to history writing, that in a half hour he could change how we're going to see everything. Um, the fact he cared, I thought, was just interesting um, and is a different element uh, of of who he is. Um, and then he, he did in that half hour, it was a half hour of presentation, half hour of Q&A. He was very transactional in terms of he, how he described his accomplishments. It gets back to that Middle East chapter. It was all about deals and negotiations at different moments of his presidency where he basically outsmarted the people he was negotiating with. He didn't talk about big ideas. He didn't talk about big policy or legacy. That's what he was interested in conveying to us. Um, and then in the Q&A, there were all kinds of interesting moments. He went into a long uh, discourse about, um, about press releases and why they're so much better than Twitter. He seems surprised that they're longer, they're more elegant, uh, almost as if he had discovered it. There's a couple moments where he says – I lost the election. The press picked up on this once I released the video. Um, you know, at other times he says it was rigged, but there are a couple moments he doesn't add the rigged. And so it was interesting to hear that he could think of it that way. He lost the election. Um, and, and, and those were the interesting, well, there was one long story I'll, I can conclude where at the end of his half hour presentation, a lot of the stuff he talked about was predictable. NATO and um, Operation Warp Speed, But then he ended by telling us this long story about the USS Gerald Ford, which is an over cost uh, ship that's being built that is way beyond the cost. And it was this story no one understood what it was about, where he was basically saying all these fancy schmancy experts had built this ship with new technology and new design. And they didn't know what they were doing. And he talked about having spoken with the people on the ship, engineers and workers who had been there for a long time. And they couldn't understand what the smart architects and engineers were doing either. And it dawned on me at the end, I thought, why is he telling us this story? And I really think he was trying to like take a jab at us and say, you people are very smart but you're not like me. You don't know what's really going on on the ground, and that was his entree. But it was a surreal experience uh, to to meet with the former president on Zoom. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, it's it's definitely uh, you know that's that description was very interesting, and I think you know on some level I wasn't surprised by the fact that you know he seemed to be cordial with you with with all yep. of you um, because something that you know for for as much of a you know, populist Trump is, and as much as he, you know, hates you know hates on journalists and you know the New York Times and Washington Post, um, he still you know has this kind of reverence for history and a reverence for um, for you know certain people in in academia, which is always something that I that I found you know an interesting trait. You know, he loves to brag about how he went to Penn. Um, and you know, I, I just wanted to to finish off the interview. You know, I, I know you're you're a you know one one of the the, the busiest people in in history. So, uh, what, what are you working on now? Any new books, new collections, uh, or or anything else of the sort?
0: So I have I have one more collection. It's like kind of last publication from this period of the last few years. It's going to come out in October with Kevin Cruz, who I wrote a book with, Fault Lines. It's a collection it's called Myth America, and it's a, a number of very good historians take on myths that you hear very often in the popular press, particularly in the conservative media about American history. And that comes out in October. And then I'm just starting a project which will take some time um, on the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party uh, which was a group of black Mississippians fighting for voting rights in 64, 1964. And they go to the democratic convention, in Atlantic city and demand to be seated instead of the all white delegation. And so it's a history of that story, what happened and how it impacted civil rights history.
1: Well, those both sound like really great projects and I, I look forward to reading them. Uh, thank you so much for, for being on the new books network. It was great speaking. Thanks. It was a pleasure.